Okay, grab your Bible, turn to the book of Job, and let's continue where we left off last time. It's going to be a bit hard, just so you know where I'm going, the next several weeks as we get into the dialogue section, it's going to be hard to really delimit off sections, uh, so we'll be, I'll be teaching up till 10.30 and then we'll say... We'll stop right now and we'll continue next week. And uh, so, so sometimes your outline may not go as far as we'd like and sometimes we may go further than the outline, but uh, that's kind of where we're at right now. We are in Job chapter 4. Just by way of review, we talked about this last time, just to put it fresh in your mind. We're in this section called the debate section. It's the section where Job uh, converses with his three friends. And remember that uh, the section basically follows this pattern. Eliphaz speaks first, Job responds. Bildad then speaks, Job responds to Bildad. Then Zophar speaks, Job responds. And the whole cycle starts all over again and repeats three times throughout the section. Okay, so that's our compass, right? That's going to keep us from getting lost as we navigate through the woods of the debate section of Job. Let me read this to you. This is a uh, 53-year-old Christian woman married for 32 years with three children who came for biblical counseling, not not in our church, at a different church. And, uh, of course, we've we've changed a few of the details uh, Uh, to make it appropriate, but um, she talks about her experience with depression, and I'd just like to read it to you. Depression is your own private little hell, unknown to everyone but you, the Lord, and Satan, and he is a part of it. It is very painful, the most devastating thing I've gone through. It makes one feel helpless and hopeless. The hurt at times is unbelievable and apart from the grace of God, unbearable. It does not just go away with the passing of time. It is a real struggle. And lots of times you don't want to struggle anymore. Depression is very tiring and almost everything you do takes a tremendous amount of effort, even just getting out of bed some days. Depression robs you of your energy, your affections, your happiness, your contentment, reasoning, It leaves you bewildered, confused, sad, angry, sometimes resentful, sometimes tearful, anxious, nervous, your stomach in knots. It affects you physically. She said that I lost 18 pounds. I had a terrible skin rash for almost three years. It affects you mentally. You think of nothing except how bad you feel and what a waste your life is. And it affects you spiritually. Sometimes I've almost lost all my assurance. I have felt forgotten and forsaken by God. It is difficult to pray, and when praying, sometimes it's like the prayer doesn't get past the ceiling. In depression, one sad thought leads to another, and in a very few moments, you are in the depths of despair. Besides painful thoughts, another habit of depression is crying. It is very difficult to break the habit. Crying does not relieve the hurt. In fact, it makes it worse, and the result is more despair. Oh God, I hurt so badly. I've heard of people dying of a broken heart, but this is worse. I'm living with a broken heart. I'm so alone. Please, God, please let me die. I'm not anything that I thought I was. When I thought I was a good wife, my husband needed someone else as a diversion. 
really an interesting little creature. I know there was no unsavoriness about it, but I was really hurt and it didn't matter to him at all. When I was so sure of our marriage and our extremely good relationship, it was like I was a nobody and now I'm convinced that I am just a plain, boring wife and grandmother. How could I have thought so highly of myself? The most confusing part to me is that all the while I thought I was trying to be a submissive wife according to the Bible. It was submissive like you, God, told me to be, and instead of being an asset, it was a liability. I was no competition for the interesting person in the world, and because I belonged to you, I couldn't compete with the deceitfulness. I couldn't have it anyway. He was so different in his attitude toward her, like it had never been with, like it had never been with anyone else except me. I do not believe he loves me. I don't know what to believe. He convinced me so thoroughly that neither I nor our relationship was his priority. My heart is heavy almost all the time, and I forget what it feels like to be happy and contented. I know we're not to ask why, but I wish I had died in 1960 when I was dying anyway. Those 20 years in between were not worth the last three years of suffering. I know we're to all have faith in you, Lord, but surely we should have confidence in our mates also. That's part of loving. 1 Corinthians 13 says, love always trusts. I guess I trusted too much. I had too much confidence in man. I don't anymore. I don't think I'll ever love completely again either. I can't because I'm so afraid. Please help me. That's a, that's a modern example of some of the very same things we see Job going through right now, is it not? Job is where this lady is. Or we could say the lady is where Job was. Um, just listening to that, what are some of the things that stood out in your mind from what I read? What, what, what stood out to you in that? Hopelessness. Me, okay, a, a focus on self. Okay, very good. David? Yeah. It's personified, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Someone else. What did you notice? Yep. Yeah. Sometimes we call that the spiral of depression. And it's just as downward, you know, I feel bad, I think the wrong thing. So I make a bad decision. That leads to a further consequence that's bad. Then I respond poorly to that, and then I just, I just spiral downward. Okay, Daryl? Okay, that's possible. Mm-hmm. Confusion. Confusion. Rich? Okay. Someone else? Tony? Okay. Where have we heard that before? The first thing Job says, right? What does chapter 3, verse 1 says? Job opened his mouth, and what did he do? He cursed the day of his birth. Now, if you've never gone through anything like this, it might be hard to picture being in a place where you hurt so much you question why God even allowed you to live. But that's where Job is, and that's where this lady is. 
He curses the day of his birth. Remember what he says? He goes on and, May the day be darkness, let God, let the day perish on which I was born. Um, He says in verse 11 of chapter 3, Why did I not die at birth? He asks again in verse 20, Why is light given to him who suffers and life to the bitter of soul? He says, "If, if this is what life is like, if this is the bitterness of life, why live? Maybe some of you have experienced that. No doubt some of you have. Uh, probably many of you have not. And and I read this because we need to get into where Job is here. We need to picture what it's like to be in the place that he's in. He's in the place where he's lost hope. He hurts so bad, all he wants to do to die, uh, is die. And we're going to see, as Job responds to Eliphaz today, He's going to look up to heaven, Job is, and he's going to say, God, why don't you just kill me? Uh, And if you don't have a category for that, um, we need to really, really recognize that uh, suffering can bring you to that place. And not just suffering, but like last time, we talked about chronic suffering. When your suffering doesn't go away immediately. Well, that's where we're at, Um, and we'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, Eliphaz has begun to speak. Job, remember, they're sitting there in the dust. Job is outside the city. He's in this this state of mind where he just wants to die. He hurts so much. He's he's questioning why God let him live, and he's pouring out his heart. Finally, he can't take it, and he he, um, gushes forth in emotion and speaks in chapter 3. And uh, none of his friends had ventured to say anything at this point at all uh, until Job speaks, and then finally Eliphaz responds in chapter 4, verse 1. And let's just uh, review briefly what we saw last time. The first thing Eliphaz says is he accuses Job of being impatient. And we, we saw that last time, chapter 4, verse 2. If one ventures a word with you, will you become impatient? And he says in verses 3 and 4, Job, you've admonished many, you've counseled many people. Uh, Job was uh, probably an elder or held some sort of position in the city that he lived in, and so he was uh, in a a place where he was regularly giving advice and uh, even correcting others. Verse 5, and Eliphaz says, but now it's come on you and now you're impatient. Okay, Not a good approach to helping people that are suffering. Um lest I be commander obvious up here. Um, but d- I can relate so much to that, and I hope you can too, because when we're not the one going through the trial, we we can lose patience so quickly with people. Like I said, you know, we hear of some person who uh, something happens and they're in the hospital or whatever, and we mobilize the Grace Bible Church machine, right? <laughs> Right, and there, there's meals going, and it's on the prayer chain, and and we're going to visit and all that, and the person comes home from the hospital, and it didn't solve the problem, whatever the procedure was, and okay, keep them on the prayer list and keep checking in with them, and weeks lead to months, months can lead to years, and before and before we know it, we've forgotten about the person, we've forgotten about the situation, and when we see them, how's it going? Well, you know, not so good. And we can lose patience with those people. Why, why aren't you better? Why, why, why is this trial still ongoing? And 
we need to be very, very careful when we're not the one in the trial. Be very, very careful um, to be able to think about what it must be like to be Job or to be this, this lady whose husband apparently left her uh, for another woman. So that's not a good approach. He immediately accuses Job of being impatient. Uh, Job, you, you've admonished others and now you can't take it, is what he's saying. He says in verse 7, Remember now, whoever perished being innocent. Now, what's, what's he saying there? What's he saying? I guess you weren't so innocent, right? He, he couches it in the form of a question, but he's kind of coming through the back door, kind of giving him the elbow, saying, you don't really think you're innocent, do you? Innocent people don't suffer. Everybody knows that, right? In fact, he, he goes on, according to what I have seen, verse 8, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. Or Paul's version in Galatians, you reap what you sow. And, and notice, we spent a little bit of time talking about this last time, so I won't spend a whole lot of time on it, but verse 8, according to what I have seen. Now, we're all guilty of this. So, so, can we just have a little family meeting here for a little bit? We all tend to counsel others out of our own experience. Uh, isn't that true? Whether it's a, uh, something with your kids. Oh, yeah, my kids had that problem. My kids did that. Or something with school. Oh, yeah, the teacher did that at my school. Or, or um, I, remember, <laughs> I remember when we were pregnant with Alan, and all the advice comes out of the woodwork, right? All the moms, all the ladies, you know, and all, all this advice. And, and so thankful, so well-meaning. We, we gain so much from that. But, but what is that? We're, we're all counseling out of our experience. This is what happened to me, and this is what I learned, or this is what happened, bad or good, and then now I'm going to relate that to you. And the pro- what, what's the problem with that? As well-intentioned as that is, what's the problem with that? Everybody's... That's really true. People, people's response is unique, isn't it? Yes. Very, very, very good. What's the other problem with that, David? Well, our analysis of what happened to us and how we responded to it is probably faulty. Okay. We are our own worst evaluators, aren't we? That's why we need the body of Christ. That's why we need others. Because what is most obviously wrong with me are the, things I'm, I'm the, are the things that I probably can't see very clearly, right? And yeah, so I'm, I'm trusting that my evaluation is good, and it, it probably isn't. What else? Okay. Okay, could be taken as criticism. Wes? Yeah, have you guys noticed we're all different? We notice that, right? We're all different, right? We have different experiences, different things that happen, different responses. Um, and... and And here's something to think about. Only the God of the universe can give counsel that is universally applicable. Right? Because only He is omniscient. Only He sees it all. Right? Everything else. we got to like this much little snippet of what's going on. And like, like David said, we're prone to misinterpret that. 
But we all tend to do that. We all tend to counsel out of our own experience. And, w- and what we, we need to be doing is counseling out of the timeless word of God. Okay? Now, now footnote, okay? Experience is where we flesh out our theology, isn't it? There's nothing wrong with experience. That's where we live. We don't, we don't live in a theology class disconnected from life. Life is, is where we see theology applied. And experience is very, very important because it helps us to refine theology, to see holes in our, our theology. And, and that's where it's all flashed out. So I'm not bad-mouthing experience. I'm just saying that can't be the basis of our counsel. Does that make sense? Okay, just had to add that footnote from last time. And, and that's what he does there. And, and, and here's how Eliphaz's theology goes. I'm going to say that. How do you pronounce a, a, a Z that's possessive? I don't know. But what's that? I, can't, I just keep going. I'm like, I slide another three or four Zs. You know, I, just, I can't put the brakes on and stop with that one. So here's his theology, okay? Job... You're suffering because obviously there is some sin in your life. Okay, You are reaping what you sow. And that's the extent of his theology. And as we talked about last time, that is a biblical principle. The problem is it's one principle and he needs about a dozen of them. That's not the only reason the Bible says people suffer. It's one of the reasons, but it's not the only reason. People reap what they sow. And then we saw in verse 9, God is specifically punishing uh, Job, he says, by the breath of God, those who sow trouble, those who plow iniquity, verse 9 says, by God's own breath, they perish. God brings about those consequences in their life so that God is the one who is inflicting punishment. Let's move on. Okay? He says in verse 6, Eliphaz says to Job, is not the fear of the Lord... Your confidence, where am I here? Is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your wage your hope? I love that verse. You know why I love that verse? It reminds me of one of my favorite Proverbs, Proverbs 14, 26. Just hold your place there and flip over to Proverbs 14. You know where I'm going? Good. Proverbs 14, 26. You know, uh, the fear of the Lord is one of the main themes. It could be argued that it is the main theme of Proverbs, but at least one of the main themes. And, and I've, I've always loved this verse. I, I remember discovering this um, early in seminary and um, just immediately appreciating it. I think of it often. Uh, Proverbs 14, 26. In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence. See, confidence is not in self. Uh, we could digress to talk about the, the foolishness of the self-esteem movement, but we won't. Um, because to the believer, his confidence is in the fear of the Lord. Confidence is a good thing. But it needs to be a confidence in the fear of the Lord, not a confidence in self or not a confidence derived from all the appreciation that everybody gives you. Okay? And notice he says his children will have refuge. That's a wonderful, it spills over in the life of kids. But um, that, that, That's biblical. What Eliphaz says is biblical. The fear of the Lord is Job's confidence. That's a good thing. But here's the thing that, that, that made me stop in verse 6. 
in Job, he says, is your fear of God, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways, your hope. He does this, you know, what, what always happens in Hebrew poetry, he says the same thing two different ways. It's called parallelism, called synonymous parallelism. He's going to say the same thing two different ways so that we're sure to understand what he means. Now notice, back in Job chapter 4, verse 6, what are the two things that he parallels in verse 6? He takes two concepts and he says these are essentially equal. What is it? The fear of the Lord and what? His, his ways, right? His life, his integrity. And that made me think of another proverb, Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Because see, the fear of the Lord is not some sort of ominous, nebulous trust that just sort of relates to what I think. But the fear of the Lord, you can see that in the integrity of the life. And what, what Eliphaz is saying is, Job, I see your integrity, and that shows me that the fear of the Lord is your confidence. It parallels the fear of the Lord with integrity. It's not the main point of the text, but I thought that was pretty cool how that was um, the writer put those two concepts together there. And we see that same thing in Proverbs. Now look at this. Um, he talks about God punishing him in verse 9 and, and all that. Verse 12, this, this is interesting. Eliphaz says, Now a word was brought to me stealthily. That's a very interesting word, secretly. And my ear received a whisper of it amid disquieting thoughts from the visions of night when deep sleep falls on men. Dread came upon me and trembling and made all my bones shake. Then a spirit passed by my face and the hair of my flesh bristled up. This is before they had goosebumps in their vocabulary. So that's how you would say it in Hebrew. No, it's true. That's, that's what they're saying. He was so scared that he had the physiological response. What's he talking about here? Well, he, he either had some vision or more likely he is coming up with something that he experienced in order to better sell his case to Job. Okay, It's hard, it's hard to tell whether he actually saw a vision or whether this is sort of a, a teaching device here. We don't know. But whatever it was, it says he stood still, he could not discern the appearance a form was before his eyes. There was silence. Then he heard a voice. Here's what Eliphaz heard. Verse 17. Can mankind be just before God? Now, whether that was a real vision or not, is that not a great question? Are you, are, are you circling the questions in this, like I told you to? Are you marking the questions in this section? The questions help us navigate through the text. And Eliphaz says, how can mankind be just before God? Can man be pure before his maker? And probably without even intending it, Eliphaz you know, runs into a gold nugget, doesn't he? That's huge. How can a man stand before God and claim to be as pure as God, to be as righteous as God, to be innocent before God? How can we do that in good conscience? Now, again, we don't, we don't know exactly where he's going with this, but that becomes one of the questions that God picks up on at the end of the text. Because what's God, 
What's God going to say to Job at the end of all this? Job, who do you think you are? You see that? What New Testament verse does verse 17 make you think of? Something down in Romans. All right, we got it. We, we got the region here. That's right. They're at the right book. Come on, this is a good one verse. For all. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what he's saying. You can't be right before God. We're too sinful. So later on, when Job gets his finger in God's nose and says, Hey, I'd like to bring you to court and try my case. Eliphaz is setting the table for that, isn't he? You know, not we like to beat up on the three friends. Not everything they said is off. A lot of what they said is really good. It's just incomplete, and sometimes the application is bad, like we're seeing. But those are excellent questions. Look what he says, verse 18. God doesn't put trust even in his servants, and against his angels he charges error. I mean, angels, even angels aren't even perfect, right? Satan fell. We talked about that a few weeks ago. If angels aren't even perfect, how is he going to trust people? How much more those, verse 19, who dwell in houses of clay, that's us, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed before the moth. Between morning and evening they are broken in pieces. Unobserved they perish forever. Is not their tent cord plucked up within them? They die, yet without wisdom. He says no one can be right before God. Of course not. No one's truly innocent before God. And that's... I didn't think about this until now. There's a balance in the believer's life. Because we want to be Christ-like, right? We are supposed to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We are supposed to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh, right? We're supposed to be growing to be more like Christ. That's true. And a life of integrity and righteousness is to be commended. But there's a sense in which we're always going to fall short, right? No one stands before God. We are clothed, as Martin Luther, Luther said, we are clothed in an alien righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. And that's the only reason we can stand before the Lord. So the believer lives with this sort of tension between, I want to grow in righteousness, I, I want to grow to be more like Jesus, but I also know that on my best day, I am not innocent before God were it not for the blood of Christ. little New Testament footnote there. So he asked some really good questions. Okay, Chapter 5, verse 1. Now, call now, is there anyone who will answer you? And to which of the holy ones will you turn? This is interesting. Eliphaz says to Job, which angel is going to intercede for you here? It's interesting theology. Which one of the holy ones? That probably refers to angels. For vexation slays the foolish man, and anger kills the simple. Underline it, highlight it, star it, circle it. I have seen, there it is again, the foolish take root, and I cursed his abode immediately. His sons are far from safety. They are even oppressed in the gate. Neither is there a deliverer. Uh, his harvest the hungry devour, and take it to the place of thorns, and the schemer is eager for their wealth. For a fl- uh, We'll stop right there. What's he saying? Eliphaz is saying this, look. I've been around the block a few times, Job. And here's another thing that I've observed. Foolishness 
And anger will kill people. It will destroy their life. And what is, what is Eliphaz concluded? What he concludes is verse three, I have seen the foolish taking root, and so I curse his abode immediately. Eliphaz says, if I see somebody going down the wrong path, I confront them on it as soon as I can. Okay? Well, that explains a little bit of what he's doing here, right? He sees Job, a man of integrity, taking a step in the wrong direction. And Eliphaz says, because of my experience, I've seen people destroyed going down that path. I don't want that to happen to you, Job, so here I am to tell you to be careful. Do you see that? And I think that's a good thing. I think he's trying to help his friend here. But his solution is he's trying to help Job by pointing out his error quickly. By pointing it out quickly. He doesn't want Job to get too far down this dangerous road that he thinks he's on. But again... Um, is it, I mean, we, we can flesh this out in Proverbs if we wanted to. Is it loving to confront somebody who's going down a foolish path that leads to destruction? Is it loving to say, hey, wait a minute, time out, stop? Is that, is that a loving thing to do? Sure it is. So, so why, why do we step back and say that was the wrong call here? Or do we? He's still what? He's assuming what? Okay. Okay. So again, because he's basing his advice on his experience, he's totally misunderstood the situation, and now he's, he's got six cylinders rolling down this path. And the fact that he loves his friend is obvious. What he's trying to do is commendable. He's just wrong. And haven't we been there? Right? You, ever, you ever put your foot in your mouth? You know what I mean? Out of the goodness of your heart, you know, you're trying to help a brother or sister. You're trying to help them. You're loving on them. You think, I'm going to go help this brother. I am God's instrument to help this brother or sister. And being a bit hasty and probably prayerless, we take a step in that direction and we come to find out that the situation was not what it was. I was just reading Samuel this last week. Remember Hannah goes to the temple to pray and her lips are moving but she's not saying anything. And what does Eli think? We got another drunk one in the temple, right? We got another, another uh, uh, passerby who was coming home from the bar and got diverted and here they are in the religious circle. And, and so he goes up. What does he do? He rebukes her. And you know what? He was wrong. So again, we need to be very, very careful when we think about that. He's trying to help Job. That's a good thing. But he's wrong. He's wrong in the application of what he's doing. And I think so often that's where we land. What, what we want to do is a good thing. Our motives are good. But because we're not careful, we end up putting our foot in our mouth. And it's interesting. We'll talk about this next week. But Job is going to say in response to Eliphaz, I thought that when someone's in despair, friends should be kind to him so that he does not lose his hope in God. And I thought, you know, th there's more at stake here than just hurting somebody's feelings. We put our foot in our mouth by being hasty, by, by basing our counsel on experience, and a hundred other things we can do that are wrong 
We, we might be the human agent that pushes somebody over the edge to where they lose their hope in God. And God forbid that we would ever do that. It's a very, very, very dangerous place. Rich. Admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak. Be patient with everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So exactly. So so what Rich is pointing out is um, that verse reminds us that we have to assess what, as, as as Ephesians four says, what is the need of the moment, right? And based upon what the need of the moment is, then we we tailor our counsel and, and even the packaging of the counsel in the appropriate way. Greg. That's right. Oh, yeah. Hmm. No, that's a good point because remember what their theology is, I reap what I sow, right? And that points back to what Greg is saying. That points back to we've misunderstood our God. And when we must misunderstand our God, guess, guess how things go? <laughs> Not very good. Okay, thank you for, for connecting those dots there. Okay, so they're trying to help. He's trying to point out his error. He's trying to help to do that. And verse 6, he kind of falls back to where he said a minute ago. Verse 6, for affliction does not come from the dust, neither does trouble sprout from the ground. And you can just see, he, he's kind of walking on eggshells, isn't he? He's not saying, Job, you're wrong. I love you, man, but you're wrong. He's not saying that. He's, affliction doesn't come out of the dust, does it? He's, he's using all these questions to sort of tiptoe around the issue. And, and maybe, maybe that's a kind thing to do. I think sometimes, sometimes we can ask a question as a mild form of rebuke. And I don't know that that's such a bad thing to do. But we see him. Here's this man in great suffering. He's trying to communicate to his friend whom he loves. And he says, Job, the, the, you, know, you understand suffering doesn't just come out of nowhere, right? doesn't just, you know, uh, just come out like that. It doesn't come out of the dust. It has a reason. It has a cause. Pointing back uh, to the fact that Job has done something wrong. And then Eliphaz turns the corner. Look what he says. He ultimately gives good advice, doesn't he? Verse 8, But as for me, I would seek God, and I would place my cause before God, who does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number. See, see this, is, this is so what we do, isn't it? We get a lot of it right. Seek God. You guys know it's not like, I mean, some of us are just really good at giving totally bad advice, some of us, but most of the time we're giving a mixed bag, aren't we? We're saying some truth, we're saying some error. We're we're good intentions, wrongly applied. And that's exactly what Eliphaz is doing. A lot of what he says is good. This is wonderful. Job, turn to God. That's wonderful. That's what he should have been doing. And he says, God does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number. And then he goes on about that. He gives rain on the earth. He sends water in the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the plotting of the shrewd so that their hands can attain success. He captures the wise by their own shrewdness, and the advice, the advice of the cunning is quickly thwarted. By day they meet with darkness and grope at noon as in the night. He saves from the sword of their mouth and the poor from the hand of the mighty. He gives all these illustrations that God is our deliverer. He's our help. 
And he concludes with this very, very, very important verse, which the lady that I read to you needed to hear. And I think Job needed to hear it too. Verse 16, so the helpless has what? Has hope. Do you see that? That's right on. That, that, that's right down the middle. In the midst of the depression, in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the despair, we need to remember the character of God, that He is the deliverer. He is the one we need to turn to. We need to recall, as Eliphaz does, all these ways that we've seen God work and say, therefore, as, as Jeremiah said in Lamentations 3, when he says, this I remember, right? Therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never fail. His compassions are new. Great is His faithfulness, right? What turned Jeremiah around in Lamentations 3, because in the first part, he sounds like Job, doesn't he? He sounds like the lady who, who lost her husband. And then something comes to mind, and he says, this I recall and this I have hope. It's the character of God applied, and that's what we see here. So the helpless, verse 16, has hope. And the unrighteousness must shut its mouth. And then he concludes where he began. Okay? He concludes that God is disciplining Job. For all that good, good stuff, verse 17, Behold, how happy is the man who God reproves. Is that something you want to try with somebody in the midst of suffering? What do you think? What's that? Okay. Did that remind you of Hebrews 12? Whom the Lord loves, He disciplines or chastens, right? And that's a good thing because that shows your... Well, that, isn't that the issue? Isn't timing huge? You know... If if God, if someone is really experiencing the discipline of the Lord, that's probably a good thing for them to know, wouldn't you think? But the timing of that is huge. And, and it's interesting. Behold, how happy is the man whom God reproves. I'm thinking no one's happy here. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. And, and, and I, I read that, and again, it, it's narrative, it's poetry, so, so it's, we cannot be dogmatic on the motive. But I read that as a friend who loves Job, who's really trying to help. That he's, I don't think he says that out of pride or arrogance. And listen, listen to his encouragement, verse 18. If he inflicts pain, he will also give relief. If he wounds, his hands also heal. Isn't that true? Even when God is legitimately disciplining, even that's when really what is going on. This, the same, we, we've all been there, for us who are parents, the, the same hands that have to inflict the punishment to the child are the same hands that come around that child in love and embrace after the discipline is over, right? That's what he's saying. And then he's going to give... Uh, seven examples of God delivering again, and, and we can read those there. And then verse 27, he says, Behold this, we have investigated it, and thus it is. <laughs> Where is he back to? 
I've been around the block a few times. I, I've seen how this goes. We, we've checked it out. I've, I, I, had, I had the same thing happen. No, he didn't say that. I had the same thing happen to me. He'd probably say, I had a friend who this happened to one time, right? I was Googling this the other night, and no, that, that probably wasn't it. Verse 27, Behold this, we have investigated it, and thus it is. Hear it, and know for yourself. So we see in the counsel of this friend some good things, <laughs> some bad things, and a lot of misapplication. Okay? What he's saying isn't bad for the most part. It's just off base. He, he's, he's giving the wrong cure. It's like the, the whole issue has been misdiagnosed. Verse, chapter 6, verse 1. Then Job answered, Oh, that my vexation were actually weighed and laid in the balances together with my iniquity. For then it would be heavier than the sands of the sea. Job says this, Take everything that happened to me, combine it with everything that's going on in my heart right now, put it together, and it'd be heavier than the ocean. The ocean's pretty heavy. What do you do with that? <laughs> Again, I, I, you know, I take away from that that I probably don't have a clue what it's like to really suffer. Many of you have suffered in very significant ways. Um, I think we'd all agree that Job probably wins if we were ranking our suffering. And then we see this little glimmer of hope. He says, For then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore, my words have been rash. What's that? What did he just discover? Okay. Okay, so maybe a little bit of what Eliphaz said that was right on helped him. And for, for the weightiness of his sorrow and the weightiness of his suffering, he recognizes, maybe I was a little hasty in what I said. Verse 4, for the arrows of the Almighty are within me. They're poison. My spirit drinks, you know, in that day. Uh, they would often, um, on the tip of arrows in battle, they would put uh, chemicals on the end, which when they went through, uh, an enemy soldier would actually, you know, you have the physical damage of the arrow, but then you would have whatever that chemical was that would hurt the body. And that's what he's describing here. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. What's he saying there? One of the themes of the book. 
Who's doing all this? He's under attack by who? What? Look, look back at the text. For the arrows of God. See, if, if, we, if we remove the theological filter from this book and just read what happened, we might conclude these are Satan's arrows, right? And we're going to hear about some Satan arrows this morning because Paul talks about them in Ephesians 6. But these are not Satan's arrows here. There is a, a theological filter that is put over this book that allows us to read it as it really is. And what's really going on is this is God working. Remember, up until now we've said, you know, this, this has nothing to do, uh, this, this is about Satan and God, right? And now the lens starts to blur a little bit and Joe begins to see uh, the hand of God at work. Uh, he, he's, he's wrong in, in terms of why, but he recognizes it's God. Yes? Sure. Yeah, that's that's a that's a good way to put it. Anytime we come up with something like this, whether it's Satan or evil or sin in the world, we, we right, right. Right. Yes. Yes. That's right. Mm-hmm. Well, and 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 that's and this isn't fair because you weren't here when we talked about this, but um, that's one of the challenges of this book, is because we're, we're going to come up with these analogies. We're going to try to put this into words. It's very very challenging doctrine of how do we understand that God is sovereign, right? He's over everything. And bad things happen that we know don't honor him. Okay, we, we got to put those together, and that's what you're saying. How do we put those together? And what this book does, okay, and we've said this before, this book is going to nudge us a little bit further into seeing God's active hand in things, but never in a way. And that's why I like what you said. But never in a way that he is responsible for the evil and sin and wickedness. Remember, that that was Job's response, right? Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will return. The Lord gave, and the Lord took away. That's very active, right? God did this. But then the end of the text says what? Job didn't sin. He didn't ascribe wrongdoing to God. So so that's the balance, okay? That's the critical balance here. We want to see God's active hand in everything, because He is sovereign, but never in a way that we ascribe wrongdoing to Him. Thank you for for that comment. That was very, very good. All right, um, I think I gave you the first part. He reflects on the vastness of his sorrow, and then he acknowledges that his words have been rash, and then finally he agrees with Eliphaz that God is punishing him. Okay, well, we'll stop right there, and we'll get the other two points uh, next time. Okay, keep reading Job, keep, keep getting into this, and uh, we'll continue Job's response next time.